Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are privileged to have Dr. Tom Cowan, who is a physician out in the Pacific Northwest. And he is going to talk to, talk to us today about vaccines. Now we've interviewed a number of experts in this area, but this is his new book and I really enjoy it. Tom is a founding board member of the Weston Price Foundation. I've been to a number of their uh, events before, and certainly every time I go, I make sure I listen to Dr. Cowan because he has enormous insight. And I've heard him share perspective on vaccines, which he goes deeply into his new book about how it distorts the immune perspective. And he's going to great expand on that greatly. And he has some novel insights that weren't shared by some of the others. And you know what I like about Dr. Cowan is just so level-headed and brings things, complex issues down to simple terms. So it's always a delight to communicate with him. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Dr. Cowan. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me again. Yes, indeed. So I loved your book. Um, interestingly, uh, as we're recording this, uh, I just finished coming back from a keynoting at PaleoFX, where they had about seven, 8,000 people. And uh, while at the event, I got to meet uh, Suzanne Humphreys, who wasn't there, but she lives in Austin, Texas, or at least is living there now. And yeah. she wrote the book, Dissolving Illusions, which is really an excellent treatise. She goes deep and just, you know, if you need some hardcore science to defend it, that it's there, but your book is different. So maybe we can start there and tell, and then there's certainly Barbara Fisher who's been out there for 30 years and we support her vigorously with National Vaccine Information Center. So maybe you can tell your uh, your intention, which seems to be from a pr practicing physician in the trenches and how you deal with these issues, which is such an important perspective. So in, in other words, what like why I wrote this? So what was, what was yeah, my so, point? Yeah, I think that was the, that was, you know, what was the intention of this with people? Because you, you address that specifically in your book that, you know, why there's so many good books out there. Why, why, why do we need another book about vaccines? And I think you fill the hole because most of those books were not written by physicians who are really actively, you know, TJ Miller's did a beautiful slide, but he's not a clinician. I think it's TJ right. Miller. So, but you, uh, there, this is the only book like that written like you did that I've read on this topic. And that was really brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, one, one simple and maybe silly way to answer that question is I wanted to, um, I think many of us have the experience that when we get sick, there's a very certain sequence of events that happens, which I describe as we're, we're fine and then we get a fever or we get hot and then mm -hmm. we get snot and then we get better. <laughs> Right? Mm -hmm. That's the way it happens. Uh, it's happened, I don't know how many times in my life, you know, 30, 40, 20, I don't know. It happens to everybody. And <clears throat> I tried to answer, ask myself all these years, why does that happen in that sequence of events? Uh, and that uh, interesting, that little question makes you get into, or at least made me get into, what is the nature of fever? What is the nature of, of the cell? Because in my opinion, we have that wrong. And how does that happen that those sequence of events always have to go in that order? What's the intention of the body? Now, once you see that, then you start to see that if you do something 
to prevent that sequence of events from happening, you end up with the risk of whatever the intention of that sequence of events is, which I can get into, that's not gonna happen. And you're gonna end up with something worse happening. And in a sense, that's the story of modern pediatrics and health in of, of the children in the United States and even in more broadly probably in the world. That thwarting of that sequence is, is such a problem. And that of course is tied in with vaccines because they're a, a preemptive attack on that sequence. Now, um, I definitely want you to expand on that because you do a brilliant job in the book on this, especially with the fever. Uh, and then how it's used, actually has been used to actually treat cancer because of the observations. But I'm one, you'd said, you'd referenced how, you know, in your own life, 30 to 40 times we went through the sequence. But, you know, it's my belief now after practicing medicine for a while that if you optimize your intake of nutrients and lifestyle, exercise, sunshine exposure, and all things we know that are healthy, that you can radically minimize those numbers, that you're not going to get sick to begin with. But you yeah. do have that rescue mechanism of the sequence you right. described, which is just magnificent. But, you know, most of the time, I mean, if you, I know myself and a lot of healthy people, we just don't get sick unless we're stressed right. or somewhere and not sleeping, you know, typically. So I'm just, I thought, I thought we're on the same board, on board with that. Yeah, obviously, and, and that even gets into the very reason why that happens in the first place. You know, and if we want to get into that, it's, it's basically the, the, the first step that I went through in that is, is, you know, obviously when I wrote the heart book, I started to investigate the nature of water and that water exists in more than three phases and it has a gel phase. And that was crucial to the understanding of the role of fever and vaccines and uh, childhood illness. Because what I realized is that, first of all, all of the intracellular fluid is in a gel phase. It's a bit like, uh, it's a bit like jello. And if you think about how jello is made, you take hydrophilic proteins and you put it in water. And if that's all that happens, nothing happens. So you have to heat up the proteins, this solution. And what happens with that? Well, that unfolds the proteins, makes them from a, from a circular to a essentially linear shape. And then they can interact with the water so that when it cools, it forms this gel. Now, that process is exactly the same as happens inside our cells that there's intracellular proteins, there's water, and the role of heat, because obviously you can't use heat to do that, is a molecule called ATP, which some people say is the energy molecule, but I would actually beg to differ. And what it does is it binds with the proteins in the cell, unfolds them, and allows the cell to interact with water. And so that forms a gel inside the cell. Now, the reason that's so important is, for instance, one of the crowning achievements of cell biology in the past centuries was understanding how a cell can live in a salty environment, but yet exclude all the sodium from the inside and accumulate potassium. And 
as a result of that difference uh, between the sodium and potassium, there's actually a charge around the cell, which allows the cell to integrate itself into a whole and to do work. And there's literally nothing more important in cell biology than that process. So over the years, people have figured out that it must be because of this sodium potassium pump in the membrane. That's what considered, again, one of the crowning achievements in biology. But very interestingly, a guy named Gilbert Ling did studies on it and showed that it would take 30 to 40 times the energy to run the sodium potassium pump than we have as energy for our entire being. And so it can't be the pump. So how does this happen? It happens because the nature of the intracellular gel is it's like a mesh and the mesh naturally excludes sodium and collects potassium. And there's no energy required except for the ATP to unfold the proteins. And so essentially what, what we're talking about is when the gel is, let's say the perfect liquid crystal, like the perfect jello, then that's a perfectly well-functioning cell. Now, all the things you just mentioned that create good health so you don't need to be sick, those things like sunlight and earth exposure and holding hands and infrared radiation and not EMFs and good food and not sugar and all, you know, we could go on and on. All those things facilitate the creation of this perfect gel, which then, in a sense, creates perfect health. Now, what happens to interfere with that? Well, let's say you dissolve something in that gel, which distorts the, the ability of the gel to form properly. Then, essentially, nothing in cell biology is going to work. So if you put arsenic in there, if you put aluminum in there, if you put glyphosate in there, if you put antifreeze in there, all the things which, by the way, are in vaccines. Anytime you dissolve those things in your gel, you, it's like you have a, a screen on your house to keep mosquitoes out, but now the holes in the screen are you know, a, an inch wide and that's too big for the mosquitoes. So it can't exclude the sodium, it can't include the potassium, it can't do all the other functions that the cell does. So I start always by asking myself, what would I do if I was a cell or if I was a body and I had aluminum dissolved in my gel? Well, I have to make the gel run. So in order to do that, just like jello, you heat up the gel. So that's phase one, fever. And then I have to flush it out to make it run out of my body so I can facilitate what we usually call detoxification. So that's the snot part. So that's how we get rid of whatever is interfering with our intracellular gels to essentially keep ourselves healthy. And when you look at children and how they get sick, it's just one process of another. You know, they're, they're growing, they're making metabolic poisons, they're exposed to all kinds of things. It's part, in a sense, of the growing process to every once in a while, not all the time like happens now, but every once in a while, 
do a heating up and a snotting out, a kind of spring cleaning, and then you get on with being a healthy child. When you see a child who is doing that all the time, and then it becomes a worse and worse situation and becomes chronic disease, that's a child who A, is chronically being intoxicated by all these different influences, doesn't have enough sun and earth and good food and all those other things, or is being thwarted from going through those natural phases. Either case, you're gonna end up with chronic disease. Yeah, and what you're describing is uh, sort of, somewhat appears to be a, an abbreviated form of detoxification, which I've been doing a very, very deep dive in, in the molecular biology of that. And you can right. replicate some of those pretty easily by going into an infrared sauna, especially a healthy exactly. one. It's full spectrum that has, you know, that actually heats up the cells. And, you know, there's different types of toxins. You know, you mentioned heavy metals, which I think are hydro, uh, hydrophilic or hydrophobic. So they're, they're essentially fat soluble and they're stored in the cells and when you release them and through fasting, massive way to detox. So exactly. those are those are tangents that we could talk, I literally could talk with you for three to four hours about that and not repeat one thing. But th this is about vaccines and I wanna keep focused. And I'm particularly curious, you mentioned that, cause I love the way you challenge traditional concepts. And I didn't see this in your book that you, you just said that you challenged the concept that ATP is the currency of the cell. So maybe you mentioned it in the book and I missed it, but what is your, what, can you expand on that? I'm curious. Yeah, I did mention it in the book because- okay, I missed uh, it. Yeah, again, um, I've learned a lot from Gilbert Ling who was essentially Gerald Pollack's kind of mentor in biology. Okay. And- Oh, I didn't know that, didn't realize that. Yeah, he, he was the one who, um, who did ran the numbers essentially on the sodium potassium pump and said that can't be it's not possible the sodium potassium pump is like a backup generator so when things break down in the ability to uh, to form this gel which naturally does the exclusion of sodium then you need to use some mechanism that involves energy which is not a good situation because then you're going to be essentially using your energy to do something which should happen energy free. So that's always a dangerous situation. That's a kind of a death spiral. Uh, the other thing he did, which is of course very controversial because ATP is such an, a huge subject now, is he, he essentially said there's no more energy in a, a ATP molecule than any other common molecule. That's not the role of ATP. The role of ATP is to bind to the intracellular proteins and change their configuration so that they unfold and can essentially interact with the water to form the gels. That's interesting. Typically, when you hear of uh, protein unfolding, that's uh, degeneration that can lead to premature death of the protein and senescence of the senescent cell and ability to, to reproduce. So I wasn't familiar with the concept where this uh, sort of folding and unfolding collapsible proteins uh, mitigated or not uh, catalyzed by ATP, but that's an intriguing concept. Yes, it's very interesting. Now, have you ever looked at uh, perhaps even a more fundamental component than ATP that runs these whole thing? Because if you don't have the redox uh, oxidation reduction equations balanced primarily with NAD, NADH, then, then the ATP doesn't work. You're not going to generate ATP. So that, right. that's just beyond fascinating. That's where I'm diving deep now in the NAD. 
Right. You, but, it, there's layers upon layers. Yeah, layers. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we don't want to go there now, but we will in yeah. the future. Uh, but I, I jumped there prematurely because we should step back, which I think is to address a topic that, you, you know, I heard you first talk about many years ago and you explained really well in the book. And that is that all vaccines cause a distortion in your immune response and imbalance from the cell mediated immunity, immunity and the uh, humoral immunity. And that distortion radically increases your risk of cancer. So it's a fascinating story. And why don't you expand on that? Right. That That's, that's the sort of main part of the book that mm -hmm. That um, again, you know, the fever snot paradigm there. So, so here's what happens when you get a childhood diseases or a viral disease. So, step one, you've never encountered this virus before, so it gets in and infects the cells. And, and what does that mean? It goes into the cell and distorts the gel. The body. Here, here's how I'm thinking about it. Here, the body says to itself. We can't have these distorted gels because that changes everything. It changes our perception. It changes how we function, changes our spatial orientation. So first step in immunity is develop a certain immune system called the cell-mediated immune system, whose job it is is to use the white blood cells and chemicals that attract the white blood cells to the site of these infected cells. And basically, it chews up and spits out these cells, creating snot. And the process usually takes anywhere from five to 10 days or so, that's the general course. And during that time, the person, or particularly the child, is what we call sick. They have a fever, they have mucus, they have a cough, they have a runny nose, all the things we call sick. Now, at the end of that time of being sick, and I would point out, that these things we call sick, fever, snot, et cetera, are not the virus. They're the virus provoking a cell-mediated response. And how do I know that? Because you can provoke a cell-mediated response with no viral infection and you're, quote, sick. And the other thing you can do is you can inject somebody or infect somebody with a virus and use prednisone to stop their cell-mediated response and they'll never get sick. You can kill them, but they won't be, quote, sick. They won't have a flu and a cold and fever and all that. So the, the experience of being sick is the cell-mediated immune system becoming activated. And the function of that is to clear the virus, clear the dead cells, rejuvenate the gels. Once that happens, you're no longer sick anymore, but, the, but you know, our... Our, our biology and its wisdom has said, well, we don't want to get that same sickness over again, like measles. You don't want to have measles every third week. So we develop a second system called the humoral immune system that makes antibodies to a certain part of the virus so that if we ever encounter that virus again, it can clear the virus before it infects the cells the cell-mediated reaction never has to get involved, and there's no symptoms ever again from measles. And so for your entire life, if the cell-mediated comes first and the humoral comes second, you will never have measles again. And that is almost a 100% foolproof system. 
Now, the important point about that is the humoral part, there's no symptoms. You don't know when you're making antibodies. It happens <coughs> approximately six to eight weeks after the initial event. So that's how we're meant. That's the two parts of our immune system. Now, here's what happens with vaccines. Vaccines are engineered to not provoke a cell-mediated reaction. Why is that? Because if you gave somebody a live virus and provoked a cell-mediated reaction, you would make the child sick with all the attendant risks of that. And the parents would say, hey, you just made my child sick. I'm not doing this again. So the whole point of a vaccine is to not have a cell-mediated re reaction, which is the part that clears the virus and clears whatever else you put in the virus. And so they do provoke an antibody response, albeit a temporary one, because if without the cell mediated coming first, the antibody response doesn't last. How do I know that? Because you have to keep giving booster shots over and over again, or the immunity wears off. Now, you could say this, the, the strategy of a vaccine is to provoke antibody responses. Mm -hmm. That's the strategy. Mm -hmm. And then you could say, there's another thing that comes into play here, which is why, do you, why don't they give just measles virus and saline? Mm -hmm. Like, why do we put all this stuff, like dead fetal cells and glyphosate and aluminum and formaldehyde and a whole list as long as your arm of stuff that nobody would get anywhere near if they, could, if they thought about it? Why do they put that stuff in there? Why don't they just put measles virus, a part of the measles virus, the antigenic part, and saline? It's because it doesn't make an antibody reaction. Not strong enough. Yeah, there's no antibody reaction to do anything, and so the thing doesn't work. So you have to put aluminum in it. Or another it, adjuvant. There's or another that adjuvant. It might be even more toxic. Right. Although aluminum is pretty bad. <laughs> aluminum is pretty bad. So, and these are called adjuvants, like you said. Adjuvant means helper, means this, these are to give a broad spectrum antibody humoral immune response. So that's, that's the field. Now, when you look at, for instance, the definition of an autoimmune disease or the definition of you know, we're talking anything from Hashimoto's and rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease and allergies and on and on. All these, all these diseases, they are characterized by an excessive antibody reaction. That's how we diagnose them. You have antibodies to ANA. That means you have lupus. You have antibodies to your cartilage, rheumatoid factor. That means you have uh, rheumatoid arthritis. You have antibodies to your intestinal cells. That means you have Crohn's. You have antibodies to your thyroid. That's like 40 million people. That means you have Hashimoto's. So at some point, somebody has to ask, how come all these people have too many antibodies? And as you know, because I'm a bit of a smart aleck, I say, <laughs> maybe the vaccine program worked. <laughs> I mean, that's the point, right? To make yeah. you have antibodies. Right. So okay. it worked. You yeah. got too many antibodies. Now, if you ask a vaccine researcher or immunologist, is it true 
that this these adjuvants, aluminum and you know human DNA, they only make you make antibodies to the measles virus, <laughs> right? Right. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Nobody thinks that. There, there's no theoretical way that you can give a non-specific adjuvant and think that it's only going to make diphtheria antibodies. Mm -hmm. That's just not, it doesn't work like that. They hope it does. And in fact, it does make diphtheria antibodies because you put diphtheria antigens in the solution. Mm -hmm. But the chance of it only making those is zero. So you have people walking around with nonspecific activation of their humoral immune system. Now, I can read you a quote from a guy named Yehuda Schoenfeld, who is the editor-in-chief of Autoimmunity Reviews and the Journal of Autoimmunology, and wrote hundreds of papers and books on how autoimmune de uh, diseases develop. And he basically says, there's a syndrome called Asia, which stands for autoimmune syndrome induced by adjuvant, which is apparently going to be named the Schoen's, renamed the Schoenfeld syndrome. Mm. And he estimates there's 150 million people worldwide <laughs> who have this syndrome. Probably and it's autoimmune syndrome induced by adjuvant. What's the adjuvant? I mean, that's the whole point. We're injecting adjuvants to make humoral reactions. Now, when you, when you talk about cancer, the reason why it's been so difficult to develop an effective cancer vaccine is because vaccines make antibodies and it's not generally speaking the part of the immune system, if even cancer is an immunological disease in the first place, which I have my doubts too. Probably but, a metabolic disease. <laughs> yes, it's probably a metabolic disease. But it's certainly not a disease of the humoral immune system. If anything, it's an intoxication, uh, which then affects your metabolic function. And the detox system is the cell-mediated immune system. And the cell-mediated immune system is deactivated, suppressed by... Tylenol and Motrin and antibiotics and the just the fact of not letting children go through cell mediated activating diseases and that's the that's the tragedy of this and you know when you read Miller's book and I put some in my book there are at least 10 different chronic diseases that we know the glioblastoma coronary artery disease osteoarthritis the incidence of children who went through measles, who went through other childhood diseases, is less than children who don't go through those because they just end up getting more and more toxic as time goes on. And that's the root cause of their disease. That's why you see things like saunas, which basically heat up the gels, get the excretion, detoxify. That's how, you know, that is Hippocrates saying, Give me a medicine to produce a fever and I can cure any disease. Yeah. It comes right out of there. 
Yeah, it's just fascinating. So I, I want to follow up on that by asking you, because uh, I'm sure most people watching this were not aware of this, that this adjuvants are contributing to the likelihood of one of the largest, single largest chronic degenerative diseases you have, which is autoimmune disease, which is, I believe affects more than people more than any other disease. Yes. So uh, once you have a distorted immune response and an overactive uh, humoral immune system, um, is, are there any specific things, other things we know generally have helped? Like you mentioned, the infrared sauna and detox and uh, you know, imp improving uh, phase two, one and two and three doc detox pathways and, and uh, binders and all these other components uh, and lifestyle issues. Or is there something specific that you can target? Obviously you don't want to have any future vaccines. It's just going to make it worse. There's no right. question. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't know that there are, but maybe you've got some insights on that. You, you know, the, I don't know that there are either. And I, I didn't, I didn't write this book to say, okay, right. here, I have Here's the answer to all. No, no, but it show it, it, it covers the problem. That's the first step yeah. to identify what the issue is. It's identifying the issue and, and really, you know, what I see is happening is that for some reason, medicine in general and pediatrics in particular has essentially decided to wage war on the cell-mediated immune system. And that's our best friend. That's how we <laughs> detoxify. And, and all this stuff with, you know, suppressing fevers. And, and so if you suppress fevers your whole life, Essentially, you're going to have to do saunas when you're older, <laughs> right? I mean, th yeah. Why, why, don't, why don't you share your clinical experience? Because you're like me, are trained as a family physician, and you're in the trenches, and you know you've anth anthroposophical medicine, and you mentored so many of your patients, unlike I did, to w go through the fever without the antipyretics like Tylenol and and aspirin. So share and and share the numbers that you had, which are fascinating. I mean. You know, I've been doing this for 35 or so years. And in the beginning, uh, most of my patients were around the Waldorf School and the biodynamic farm we were, we were starting. And, you know, we had a community-supported practice. And it was basically a bunch of my age people with unvaccinated children. And, we, 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 I, you know, I, I had no experience treating asthma and, and, and Crohn's and autism and chronic disease, except with my connection with Camp Hill, children who came from other places who were damaged. We, we just didn't see that. And in fact, the-, the, the ah, this, you know, That was last century, folks, last century. Yeah. Right, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about it, and when you see somebody like that and you say, you know, what's gonna have to happen here? We're gonna live and we're gonna, put you on a right diet and, you know, out in the sun and, and barefoot and all this, and we're going to wait and you're going to get, the child is going to get sick. Now, I remember this from my, res, my uh, pediatrics resident. We had this child, I think I talked about in this book, worst case of asthma I'd ever seen. He was on three inhalers and, you know, couldn't hardly walk across the room and, you know, always going in steroids and everything. One day he shows up in the emergency room, 104 fever, white out of about a third of one half of one, one of his lungs. He had full-blown bacterial pneumonia. We listened to him uh, breathe for the first time ever. 
doesn't have any wheezing at all. Uh, and I, w- I already knew about this, but I, you know, because I was, was a smart aleck, I said to the attending, how come he's not wheezing? Like, <laughs> he should be worse. He, like, you know, he's got pneumonia. We think he's going to die here. Oh, well, he, he, he gave me a reference to bacterial infections in the lung have a bronchodilation effect, which is actually known. But interestingly, when you, you know, you look at this from another perspective, when you see asthma, what you see is the crystallization formation of the tissue of the lung. There's actually names for these called Kirschmann spirals and Charcot-Ledin crystals. So the normal elastic, flexible, pliable lung tissue starts sort of solidifying and mineralizing and becoming actually crystalline crystals. Um, So what is the body going to do about that? You know, what is the therapy? The therapy is to heat it up and dissolve it, use the strong enzymes in bacteria to actually dissolve these crystals. And then when you come anew and you, quote, get better, which is an interesting word for it, you now have normal lung tissue again. And that's how you heal asthma. So what did we do? We gave him antibiotics, uh, quote, cured his bacterial pneumonia. And then as soon as that was cured, he wheezing came back and we put him on his inhalers again. Uh, So like it or not, when you're talking about children, they're still pliable enough that if you give them you know, a good lifestyle and, you know, not feed them glyphosate and, and, and inject aluminum in them, they will eventually go through these kind of healing crises. It's like doing their own saunas. They'll go through three or four days of fever and sweating, exactly the same thing I'm talking about, dissolving gel, snotting it out. And at the end of that, they will be a long ways towards not having whatever chronic disease they have. And that's how I treated children. And, you know, we have different homeopathic and anthroposophical remedies and liposomal vitamin C to help things along. But we basically just let children go through their stuff. And, and at the end of the day, they had physical and, interestingly, sometimes psychological, emotional, and spiritual growth. Yeah, that's like amazing. I, I remember my son going through an infection and then comes downstairs and draws apples on the tree for the first time. Mm. It was just a classic example of to, to see this sort of culmination of this. He used to draw trees, but no apples. He gets sick, three days, fever, snots it out, comes downstairs, draws an apple. He's here now. Yeah. So that that's a great story, and I would just like to highlight the mention, the reference to liposomal vitamin C, uh, and one of the largest causes of death. I mean, even rivaling opioid addiction, is death from sepsis in this country, and it's just shocking that it's well established in conventional medicine that intravenous vitamin C, and I think vitamin B one can lower the mortality by ninety percent. So knowing that's true. You know, rather than when your child gets a fever, 103, 104, 105 degrees centigrade, well, don't run for the antipyretics like Tylenol and aspirin. Run for liposomal C. And the reason it's liposomal, because if you 
if you have take them regular, so you'll cause massive loose stools and that upsets the microbiome and liposomal doesn't do that. So you can right. go to a whole bottle of liposomal C a day and maybe that's all you'd need. So that's just great wisdom. But why don't you expand on this yeah, fever it, issue? It, for it, it facilitates the detoxification right. process. Yeah, that's absolutely. what it does. And when you do that, that's what it's all about. Why is the body doing this? It's, it's not, there, it, it's not for no reason. The body is heating it up and spitting it out because it wants a cleaner system at the end. And all you have to do as the squire of this is to understand, reassure the parent, children effectively develop a healthy immune system and give them some things like liposomal vitamin C, you know, and that in homeopathic medicines that mm -hmm. work with fevers and that's it and yeah that's it know, <laughs> nothing else nothing dangerous I, I haven't had any bad outcomes i mean knock on wood because you and, know in a full career of 35 years you yeah. just had not one bad outcome with that highly conservative approach yes yeah, now, I, I don't i i almost hesitate to say that because Things happen. You yeah, know, tomorrow, next happens. week. <laughs> yeah. Things happen, but boy. That's great. So just an expansion of the, the benefits and the power of fever. Why don't you go into the Cooley's toxin, sort of a brief summary and how that was used. Initially, they used the infection to generate this fever to, for cancer and had success. And they said, well, but some people died from the infection. They said, well, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should like extract yeah. the toxin and not give them a lethal <laughs> a bacterial infection. So it's an interesting story, Cooley's toxins. Yeah, I mean, so John Cooley was, was a uh, surgeon. He was a sarcoma specialist. He actually worked at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which was the, the purview of, of Ewing, who was the, whose Ewing sarcoma is the name of the sarcoma. So he was the sort of the guru of treatment of sarcoma. And uh, at some point, I think early, late 1890s or early 1900, Coley was presented with John Rockefeller's, I think, girlfriend, although I don't know if they called her that, um, <laughs> who had a sarcoma. Uh, and that's obviously an important case for him because he was the main, I think, funder of the hospital. And so he did his thing, you know, and did the amputation, et cetera. And then she died about eight weeks later. Mm -hmm. And that really kind of discouraged him. And he ended up looking through the records of Kettering Hospital at New York City to find out what really happens with our treatment with sarcomas. The answer is nothing much good, except for some dock worker. I think his name was Stein. And he was, uh, there was a note in his record saying, admitted cancer-free uh, after a four-week stay in the hospital. So he goes and tracks this guy down. He says, what happened to you? Are you still fine? Say eight, 10 years later, he's totally fine. He said, ah, they didn't do anything for me. I got sick while I was in the hospital. He got erysipelas, which is a strep infection of the skin, which is characterized by very high fevers, red skin. And he had about a temperature of 104 for about four weeks straight. The mortality rate is high, but obviously he didn't die. And at the end of that four weeks, uh, his cancer was cured. And Coley, to his credit, said, hey, I wonder what happened here. Uh, at that time in Europe, there was actually a lot of interest in fever therapy. And interestingly enough, at some point later than that, 
Rudolf Steiner, who I talk about a lot, uh, started mistletoe therapy, Iskador, for cancer. And when asked what does mistletoe Iskador do, he said it simulates a bacterial infection. So it gives you this what's supposed to happen with a bacterial infection without the bacteria. So Coley spent the next number of years infecting people with erysipelas. And he would have them lie in the same bed with people with erysipelas, scratch their skin. Uh, interestingly, 40% of them never got erysipelas. 20% sort of nothing happened. And another 40% got erysipelas and either got better or died from the infection, which is good and bad. The good is that they got better. The bad is that they died of the infection. And so he tried to look for a better way and thought that it was really the fever, which I would say another word for fever is the cell-mediated immune response. It's the same thing, or far infrared simulation of the immune response. Um, so he, he essentially figured out a way to take the fever-producing part of the, of the erysipelas bacteria and he mixed it with uh, some Neisseria bacteria endotoxin. And he would give these uh, so-called Coley's toxins to people, inject once, once a day for four weeks or so, give them 104 fever for four weeks. And there's documentation of literally 1,000 people being cured by this. It became, you know, Roche Pharmaceuticals developed their own Coley's toxin. It was the first and main, you know, adjunctive therapy for cancer in the US, widely popular, widely successful. I ended up talking to Kellen, Helen Coley Knotts, who I think was his granddaughter, who back in the uh, early 90s gave me a book of the written cases. There was this huge book of, of all the cases who had been cured simply with fever therapy. Now, the irony of this to me is, is Sloan Kettering still has an immunology for cancer department. And they actually isolated uh, what they think was the active ingredient in the fevers. They called it tumor necrosis factor. There was also interleukins and interferons, which you make during bacterial infections. So they've spent decades basically injecting people with tumor necrosis factor, interferons, interleukins. And then interestingly, when they get a fever, they give them Tylenol <laughs> to suppress the fever. And then the whole thing doesn't work uh, and they can never get anybody cured of cancer this way. They create a lot of toxicity and they basically abandon it. They say the immune, immune therapy doesn't work. But the irony is the immune therapy was the activation of the of the cell mediated cell mediated immune system with fever exactly what measles does interestingly measles was well known for actually curing the nephrotic syndrome which is a autoimmune disease of the kidneys so if you have nephrotic syndrome and then you get measles most of the cases the nephrotic syndrome goes into remission and never comes back uh, you know, when you're done with the measles. So of course, once they developed a measles vaccine, they took children with nephrotic syndrome and injected them with the measles vaccine because they were telling us at the time that the vaccine creates an identical immunity as the natural disease. 
So I'm sure you can guess what happened to the children with nephrotic syndrome. Nothing. Didn't work. Why? Because it's not the humoral immune system that cures you of nephrotic syndrome. That makes it worse. Mm -hmm. It's the cell-mediated immune system. And that's like taking a sauna every day or detoxing or not taking glyphosate or whatever. Uh, that's what works. And unfortunately, that doesn't seem to register. But yeah. I want to get back to the vaccines because your book is brilliant. It really goes into some eye-opening components that we just that aren't typically discussed. And, uh, oh, there's so many places we can start, but why don't we, I mean, we can talk about polio, which, you know, you th I mean, polio is typically used, and Suzanne recognizes too in her book, Dissolving Illusions, that, um, that that is the and that and yeah polio is pretty much the main one in smallpox that the vaccine advocates use to defend their position and right. i had never heard of the toxic component uh environmentally that were correlated about the same times of the epidemics of polio that we had in the early 20th century and then before prior to world war ii so why don't you expand that because it really is eye-opening and very easy and simple to explain to friends and relatives yeah, and it's certainly the most controversial of the things I wrote about or one of them <laughs> in the book. So it's an interesting place to start. Uh, but obviously, the you know, whenever you get into this, the, there's the there's the, the what I call the "Hey, wait a minute" moments, mm -hmm. where you're, you're going along and and like everybody thinks a certain thing, and then something happens. Uh, to present you with a, a fact or an observation. And then everybody says to themselves, or maybe not everybody, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense to what my usual worldview is. Now, some of us, I think, are trained, or I would like to say schooled, to ignore those moments. So that can't be because... I, I know my first grade teacher told me and everybody else believes it. And the last thing I want to do is go against this. Uh, and then sometimes there's the, hey, wait a minute moments where you just, for whatever reason, feel compelled to follow. So he, here we go with polio, you know. So there's this virus that's an enterovirus, meaning it lives in our GI tract. And it's supposedly been around for millennia, you know, thousands of years. And yet, with very few exceptions, there's no recorded cases of polio anywhere in any medical literature until the late 1800s. There was some epidemic or outbreak in, in Europe, and then there was a small outbreak in Vermont. So the first question one needs to ask oneself is, so what happened there? Why did it change? What, what happened to the virus? Did it mutate? Did, humans change in some way, or was some other cofactor involved? So it turns out that the, the, in both those places, there was the introduction of arsenic-based insecticides used to spray for gypsy moths, first in Europe and then in Vermont. And it was well known that this insecticide, this arsenic-based insecticide, causes paralysis in cattle. And eventually they discovered that the mechanism of action of this arsenic-based 
chemical is on the anterior horn cells of the nervous system, the very part of the nervous system that polio is uh, said to affect. So then over time, this arsenic-based chemical became more and more widespread, and we start seeing uh, sporadic cases of, of polio you know, in different parts of the world and the US. And then there comes in the mid 1915 to 1918, a pretty much a, a huge increase of the cases of polio concentrated on the Eastern seaboard, particularly in Long Island. And so this provoked a lot of consternation and a lot of say, people saying, don't go to the beach and don't do this and articles in newspapers uh, about why this was happening. And there's a very good website on this called The Age of Autism, where uh, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper editor named Dan Olmsted did massive amount of research on this. And what he found out was that particularly the place in uh, Long Island off New York, uh, near New York City was the first place to uh, introduce sugar that was grown on Hawaiian sugar plantations that used a very particular form of arsenic to essentially uh, accomplish weed control. Now, the way that came about was the sugar industry, in which was mainly centered in Cuba and Hawaii, was failing because they had no way to control their weeds, and it was a huge undertaking with labor, and et cetera, to to, to uh, manage the sugar and they were losing money. And then this one guy, I don't remember his name, developed this arsenic-based way to control weeds. And besides the fact that it decimated their environment, it, it made the growing of sugar cane more profitable. And it was that sugar cane which was processed and sent first to New York City and then Baltimore and Boston, the exact places where the, uh, these outbreaks of polio came about. There's, it's also interesting that when he looked at the, the cases, they were often centered on uh, neighborhoods that were right near uh, sugar processing factories and even very particular candy stores that were getting sugar from these Hawaiian arsenic-laced um, you know, shipments of sugar. And it turns out that the arsenic does concentrate in the sugar. So basically, it, it looked like uh, that the, the story is not pure uh, in, in mutated virus or change in the, in the people, that at least that there's a cofactor here, which is uh, in order for the virus to cause disease, in order for their to, you know, to be paralytic polio, you first have to have some negative effect on the anterior horn cells, which came through arsenic. Now, it's very interesting when you read back that there was actually a proof of that the polio virus caused polio. It was done some, somewhere in the early part of the century. These researchers... Um, the 20th century or the 21st? 20, 20th century. Okay. Uh, I think it was like 1914 or so. Okay. There, there was um, some children who died of paralytic disease and they couldn't find an animal model to, to infect that would get polio. Apparently 
animals don't get polio. So they took <laughs> <Imagine> the <laughs> right. So they took uh, they they took some cerebrospinal fluid from these children who died of paralysis. They had the, the uh, monkeys. I think they were rhesus monkeys. Eat it, and nothing happened. And then they injected it intramuscular, and nothing happened. And then they injected it right into the cerebrospinal fluid of the monkeys. They basically did a craniotomy, injected it into their brain. This was purified, uh, sorry, unpurified cerebrospinal fluid from a child who died of paralysis. They injected that into the brains of these monkeys. One monkey died and the other got paralyzed. And they said, aha, we've proven that there's a viral cause of paralytic polio. Now, that's without any purification of the virus. And God knows really what these children died of and injecting the cerebrospinal fluid into the brain of a monkey and seeing that the monkey has a problem when you don't know why the child died and you didn't purify the virus. That's a joke. So that, that is still to this day considered the experimental proof that polio is a transmissible disease caused by a virus. Hmm. So we, we go on from there, and the next, then polio, for some ex unexplained reason, sort of wanes. And this probably because the arsenic use, as they discovered in Hawaii, was poisoning all the you know, <coughs> fish and all the hmm. workers and everything else. So they cut down in the use, so there was less polio, uh, less arsenic in the sugar. As time went on, then, as we all remember, another miracle chemical got not invented because it was invented in the late 1900s, I think, but became in widespread use. And it was generally used extensively in the summers. And I don't know about you, Joe, but I'm old enough to remember running behind these sprayers mm -hmm. on the ball fields as they sprayed out this sweet-smelling gas that was meant to kill mosquitoes. And as we all know, that was DDT. Yeah, they're still and, doing it to this day, but not DDT, other chemicals that are yeah. maybe every bit as pernicious. Yes, but the difference in a way is DDT, like arsenic, has a particular affinity for the anterior horn cells mm -hmm. of the nervous system, which you know essentially control the motor neurons or the movement mo movement nerves. So you started seeing, and if you see a graph of the DDT spraying in the summer with the polio, which also came in the summer, they're they're basically identical. So the more spraying, the more polio. Uh, then there was all kinds of congressional hearings on whether polio was 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 really a virus and i have testimony after testimony from people saying this is not a virus this is a uh, neurochemical uh, intoxication essentially a poisoning they didn't really know what it was they eventually did a study of uh, of an epidemic in detroit which interestingly is where i grew up and they were able to identify the virus in the children who died of paralytic polio in exactly 51% of the cases, which means in 49% of the cases, the children who died of polio had no evidence of any viral infection, which then completely 
abandons so-called Koch postulates that if you have a viral disease and you say this is the reason they died, every single person with that disease should have evidence of the virus when in fact the biggest study ever shows that it was 51%. Uh, Anyways, at some point then in the early 60s, Rachel Carson wrote the book Silent Spring. Uh, DDT got uh, stopped being used, at least in this country. That was sort of around the exact same time that the polio epidemic ended. We no longer use arsenic on the fields and we basically exported it to other countries and used other, you know, insecticides and other chemicals that have a different pathological effect. And so we don't see paralytic polio anymore. Yeah, you know, that's really fascinating because I was never previously aware that the arsenic was a component of the sugar. I mean, this, I had certainly heard and read of the stories of sugar and that seemed to make a lot of sense as it would suppress the immune system. But it would, you know, there's a lot of people eat sugar and they don't come down with polio. So exactly. it, it, it did, does make sense that there was an additional variable that it, it really right. massively increased the toxicity to it. But, you know, it's interesting because Dan Olmsted has a whole series and I really, anybody who's really interested in this, I would go to the Age of Autism website. And, you know, there was public health article after public health article telling children and families on the Eastern seaboard, don't eat sugar, sugar is bad for you. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's all, it's the, these uh, epidemics were clustered around candy stores. Uh, but like you said, n- neither of us think sugar is very good for you, mm-hmm. but it didn't cause <laughs> paralytic polio, not big, by big itself. Chance. It's, it, you know, not good for you, but you need some other variable, some other cofactor. Yeah, it certainly didn't help. So thank you for explaining that. I think that's a powerful uh, resource to have in your toolkit uh, when you're explaining this to others. If you haven't been fascinated by this, if you being the person watching this, then I don't know, maybe you shouldn't be visiting the site because this is great information. And this is just a fraction of what's in the book. And the books is Vaccines and Autoimmunity. Is that the title of the book? Vaccines, yeah. Autoimmunity. And when is, it, when is the publication date? September? September 4th, I think. September 4th. So hopefully this this interview will be posted around that time. And pick it up because there's lots more information like the chicken pox vaccine and varicella and herpes zoster and lots of corruption at the CDC and a whole variety of other topics that it's it's really is a page turner. You're going to have a tough time putting it down. So it definitely needs to be in your library. I don't care if you've read all the other vaccines book. You can see that Dr. Cowan has a unique perspective that's just easy to understand and and really gives you a, a foundational platform to really make sense of all this craziness that they're doing. So, and I think the other take home message is very clear. You need a sauna. Now I've been, I sauna every day that I'm home for the most part, I do a, a full spectrum analog near infrared sauna and heat up for about 30 to 40 minutes and then I, then I cool off in the pool. And I, you know, the Finland studies are just incredible. They show yeah. radically decreased cardiovascular mortality. And the more days a week you do it, the, the higher the, the reduction is. So first from that perspective, it's useful, but that doesn't even address the, the damage that if you've had, if you're like most of us had from given vaccines. So this is, this is, if you've been vac- given vaccinated, you need to do sauna. And this is a topic for a different discussion. It really requires a 
full hour, if not multiple hours to really uh, explain with the details. Cause it's just, just understand that that's a concept. So, yeah, so are, are there any last words you'd like to emphasize or encourage or recommend? Yeah, it's, you're just talking, you know, it's Hippocrates. Give me a <laughs> medicine to produce a fever and I can cure any disease. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, so just just be a little careful with your, probably some benefit for infrared saunas, but a lot of them, in fact, I would say almost all of them with a very few exceptions, do generate high electrical fields. So the fever that Dr. Collins referencing is one that's not, really associated with an electrical field, which can have some adverse impact on your body. So, but you know, it's a benefit risk analysis and we'll go into that in a future, future discussion. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for writing this unbelievable book. You know, when you first sent it to me, I said, oh gosh, another vaccine book, but I said, no, it's you. I'm going to read it. Right. And I'm so glad I did. I really, really enjoyed it.